Well, good morning. Uh, it's a real privilege to be here with you. As Sam mentioned, my name is um, Josh. I'm one of the members here at uh, Chalmers. And as uh, Sam mentioned, we were looking at the Westminster Confession, which is a bit sort of different from our normal mode. Um, and it's a bit different for us. It's a bit different for me. Uh, I'm used to expounding passages of Scripture, and you're used to hearing them. So we're, we're doing something a bit different uh, this morning. And um, I refer you to the, the message that Robin gave last week for kind of an explanation of, of how we're approaching this and why we're doing this, uh, which is, you can find online if you didn't hear that one. But we're just going to dive in this morning, if that's okay, because hey, we have quite a big and sort of weighty material to get through. Um, but I don't want that to put us off, because this is deeply comforting, challenging, and encouraging stuff. We're looking this morning at the doctrine of creation and providence. Um, just to begin... Um, some of you may be familiar with uh, a hymn, I think it's from the 19th century, called um, This Is My Father's World. And the first line of that, you know, this is my father's world, I think helpfully orients us to the, the, our topic for this morning. That statement, that the world that we live in belongs to my father, um, is a really comforting thought, isn't it? That this belongs to God. He made it. This is his world. He's invested in it. He cares for it. He is planning good things for it. No matter what happens in my life or in the world, this is my Father's world. That's very comforting. But it also can be a sobering thought. Um, if we are living in such a way that is breaking or challenging or um, vandalizing the good, beautiful world God has made, or ourselves or each other, this is my Father's world takes on a bit of a different tone, doesn't it? And the doctrine of creation, that God made it, and the doctrine of providence, that He continues to work with it, sustain it, and govern it, um, is both a comfort for us as Christians and a challenge to us to live in light of. Um, you have uh, in your handouts the kind of full text of the Westminster Confession on these two um, sort of aspects of creation and providence. And given sort of time constraints, I won't have time to read through all of it this morning, but you have it to refer to there. And what I've done, um, as has been done uh, in previous messages, is to take each of the sections of the, um, the confession statements there and distill them down into kind of one statement that sort of captures the gist of what's being said. So you'll find that also under the sermon notes. So sort of one-line statements that summarize each of the sections, and I'll be referring to that as we go through. I'm going to spend most of our time on providence this morning because I think the creation, um, there's so much richness and depth there, but I'll take it more as read that um, more of our um, questions might arise more in the area of providence. So we'll spend most of our time um, there this morning. But just before we get to that, um, creation, just a couple of statements there. And I refer you to the kind of one-line one summaries. The first section uh, of the, the creation um, statement basically is saying that God created everything in the beginning for His glory. In the beginning, God made everything. That is us as human beings, the physical created world, the unseen realm, spiritual world, so that which is seen, that which is unseen um, everything God made, and He made it for His glory. He made it for Himself. Now, that, that sort of final aspect there has a couple of aspects to it. At one level, that's just 
the natural consequence of God making everything. It's going to reflect something of Him. It's going to display something of what God is like. If an artist makes a painting or an architect designs a building, the painting or the, the, the artistry is going to tell you something about their character, their ingenuity, their interests, their focus, their, their creativity. And in the same way, all of creation reflects something of what God is like. So in Genesis chapter 1, where we read the creation account, we're told that God separated the day from the night. He separated the sky from the earth. He separated the waters from, from the land. He's very orderly in the way that he structured the creation. He created spaces, carved out spaces, and then he populated those spaces with stuff. He put, you know, the, the planets and the stars in the, in the heavens. He, he put um, birds in the sky. He made the seas so it was teeming full of fish. He put human beings and creatures all over the land. That tells you something about God. He's an orderly, reasoned, rational God. There's there's, there's a, a reason, there's a structure to the universe, but he's also a God who loves life. He loves abundance. He loves things to be full. He doesn't like stuff to be empty. So the creation just naturally kind of reflects and gives, bring glory to God by, by sort of approximating aspects of what he is like. So the, psalm, the psalmist writes in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. And Gerard Manley Hopkins, in his poem, The World is Charged with the Grandeur of God, captures something of this, of this truth, that, that the whole world is just suffused with God's greatness, with His glory. His power is on display, His artistry, His wisdom, His, um, his goodness. But there's a second aspect to this truth that God has created all things for His glory. Not only do they sort of naturally just reflect what God is like, but they're actually created to do that. That is why He creates. It's ultimately, that everything that He has created would bring glory to God. That's why everything exists. Ultimately, for God's glory. That's why you exist. That's why I exist. And the irony of, well, maybe not irony, but the, the reality is that all of the universe, the heavens and the earth, the, the stars, the, the, the angels who didn't fall, all of the, pretty much all of creation is doing that faithfully, bringing glory to God with their very existence. It's just us human beings, our sort of rebellious selves on this outpost of planet earth that are resisting that purpose for which we were made, refusing to uh, intentionally bring glory to God. But we are part of this in a way that we will bring glory to God, whether we are uh, com- uh, um, owning up to that uh, identity or not. So there's these two aspects to God uh, creating things for His glory. And that brings us to the second statement of, of the confession on creation. The God made, and this is just my one-line summary, the God made human beings in His image with the potential for holiness and the possibility of sin. Now, there's so much in there which we can't um, fully unpack. But the, the confession kind of zeroes in at this point on our role within God's larger creation. And we're unique in God's creation in that we're created with special potentiality to have uh, a holy, loving uh, relationship with God where we reflect His righteousness. But to have that possibility, you also have to have the possibility that we reject that, that we sin. So the creation of human beings introduces a, a sort of a kind of question mark component to 
God's creation. And we'll unpack a bit more of that as we get into the, uh, the doctrine of providence. But somehow, in and through human beings, is the potential also for God's greatest work, for the manifestation of His greatest glory. This brings us then to the, the doctrine of providence, where we want to spend most of our time this morning. And these two statements helpfully set up providence, because we have the point made that God created everything, and then He created us, kind of the question mark component of, of the universe, which sort of diverging potentialities of human beings. And that sets up the question of how is God related now to his creation and to us? How does he continue to engage with the creation? Um, That is, the response to that is the doctrine of providence. It's an answer to the question of how God is engaged with the creation now. Now, you'll notice on your handout that I've divided the the sections of, of under providence into four sections. I think this sort of um, captures the the logic of it. Um, And the first statement um, is basically kind of the unpacking of what providence means, the heart of the doctrine of providence. So let's read that one um, in full. You'll see uh, in the text in your handout there. Section one under of providence. God, the the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. There's a lot in there. But I've tried to sort of capture the, the gist of it in the statement that's on your, on your handout. That God sustains and governs everything in his foreknowledge to his praise. Now, this is carrying on from creation, that God created everything for his glory. You notice that God is continuing to work in and with creation for his praise. Um, and there's two key, key words or key concepts that are mutually helpful here, that God sustains everything and he governs everything. Those two thoughts are basically the heart of what providence uh, means or what it is. Just to help us um, situate this in the broader picture, though, I want you to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17. This is the only passage we'll have time to look at this morning. Um, there are so many passages we could go to. But Acts chapter 17, this is page 926 in your church Bibles. And in verse 24, Paul is, uh, the Apostle Paul is addressing um, Athenians, pagans, and explaining to them uh, basically a biblical worldview of God's relation to the world. In verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. We'll stop there. 
You notice the elements of what Paul is saying here. He begins with creation. God who made the world and everything in it. And in verse 25, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. There he's moving from beyond creation to the fact that God continues to sustain and give life to everything. But he does so for a purpose, so that he's allotted periods and boundaries for a purpose that they should see God and perhaps feel their way towards him. Yet he's not actually far from us. You see how creation sets up the question of God's relation to all of uh, all of, all of his creation now in the present, and it's headed in a particular direction. First, that God sustains all creation. All things are sustained by God. Everything continues to exist and operate because he upholds it. This is Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. Hebrews 1 says that God upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, the reason the earth continues to exist as it does, the reason you continue to live and move and have your being is because he upholds you by the word of his power. He sustains all of creation. So you think of the the, the parable Jesus tells of the rich fool who had great wealth. He amassed great barns to to store his produce in, and he lies in his bed one night and says, ah, I've finally arrived. Now I can settle back, eat, drink, and be merry, uh, and enjoy life. And God says to him, um, as he lies on his bed, you fool, this night your life will be required of you. And the point of that parable is, one of the aspects of that parable, is that we can't guarantee that I'm going to be here tomorrow. God can pull the plug on my life or existence at any time. Any one of us exists only by the will of God. And that's true not only of us, but across all of creation. He continues to sustain his creation. And this tells us that God is invested in the creation. He didn't just create it and then leave it to sort of tick over on its own while he sits on a throne doing Sudoku puzzles on the other side of the universe. God continues to be engaged with the creation in a very intimate way. As Paul says in the passage we looked at, he is very near you. Everything has its life by his continued sustaining power. And this is perhaps a bit less intuitive for us who live in cities where we're really distanced from the dependence that we have on the seasons, on the rain to produce food, etc. It's a bit more intuitive for agrarian societies and cultures um, where they know how dependent they are on things beyond their control. Um, Sam mentioned the the, uh, PowerPoint being a bit uh, fidgety this morning. We didn't have any PowerPoint for the earlier service. And it was a very poignant, poetic reminder that things happen beyond our control. uh, And how fitting to have the topic of providence be addressed um, this morning. We have these little reminders from time to time just to remind us that we are sustained only by God's will. But there's a second aspect to providence, not just that he sustains and upholds, but he does so in a way that directs and governs all of creation towards a particular goal. It's as if God steers the ship of the world towards his own, the the, the destination he has in view for it, which is for his glory. Um, And this applies to individual events that happen. God is working in and through individual events to achieve His greater purposes, and it applies to sort of broad, sweeping elements of world history. Governments, nations, empires rising and falling at the behest of God. So, think of 
the visions that Daniel is given in the book of Daniel, where he sees a sequence of kingdoms that rise and fall, Babylon, Babylonians, the Persians, um, the Greeks, and then empires after that. And the point of Daniel's visions is that God gives to empires, to nations, a season, but he might replace them for his own purposes, for other uh, for other ends. And everything is under God's directing, steering, governing um, control in that sense. Think of Jesus standing before Pilate on trial for his life in John's gospel, and Pilate says to him, don't you realize that I have authority, I have power to crucify you or to free you? And Jesus replies to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it were given to you from above. So God is on the throne, and he is steering events at the micro level and at the macro level for his own um, his own ends, which are fundamentally benevolent ends. He has good intentions for the world. He made this world, he sustains it, and he's deeply invested in it and continues to be engaged with, in, and through it for his purposes. And this is in contrast to um, the idea that things just sort of spin in a kind of a fatalistic sense, events just happen uh, in a predetermined way that is meaningless or merciless or hopeless, God is directing or steering events for meaningful purposes in His mercy um, for uh, hopeful purposes. The, the word providence actually comes from the Latin provider, from which we get words like vision and provide, because it has the, uh, these two aspects to it, that God sees, He has vision in advance, um, and, and is providing for His creation in such a way that directs it to the ends that He has. So, providence is a bit bigger or, or parallel or broader than just the word sovereignty, which is sometimes used as a synonym, but sovereignty is just sort of God being in charge on the throne. But providence has added to that um, sovereignty that has benevolent purposes in mind, that has meaning and direction in view. And this should make us as Christians respond in a certain sort of, in certain ways. If this is the kind of world that we live in, under the providence of this kind of God who creates the world in an orderly way, who loves it to be full of life and abundance, this should make us as Christians thankful when things go well, because we have someone to thank, someone who is engaged directing the world towards particular ends. When things go well for us or for um, the, the world more generally, we have someone to be thankful to. When things don't go well, for us, or we're not sure how things are working out, it encourages and invites us as Christians to be patient, because maybe we just haven't seen exactly how God is going to work this out yet. And it encourages us to be hopeful, because in the end, at the end, all of these things are being directed and steered towards God's, toward God's ultimate purposes, which are fundamentally benevolent, to come out of His good, holy, righteous, and wise character. Well, this raises, um, as, as encouraging and comforting as that is, it does raise uh, some difficulties for us as well. You might be asking, how could this actually be true uh, in, in comparison to my experience of the world, which seems to be a, a kind of a chaotic random place full of autonomous agents who just act independently of anything and 
normal sort of um, natural phenomena that are explicable on scientific grounds? How, how can you put my experience of the world together with this doctrine of providence? And a second kind of related question is, how do we put providence together alongside human sin? With the fact that there's evil in the world, how can those two things work together? Well, the next sections of the confession are addressing those questions. So you'll notice on your handout that I've divided them into two, two kind of responses of the confession to those questions. The first question, how can providence be, be true when the world seems sort of a place of random chaos, is answered by the, the, the way that the um, confession explains the relationship between providence and means. Look, look with me at section two of the confession. Uh, the full text there. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and fallibly, yet by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Now, the big picture here is that God is provident, he's, he's engaged steering the ship, but he makes use of second or secondary causes, second level causes, which are further explicated as operating necessarily, freely, or contingently. Now, what on earth is going on here? Um, these three words um, basically are referring to uh, sort of three aspects of three kinds of secondary causes. So, necessarily is a reference to what we would call the laws of nature, sort of normal patterns of the created world, the seasons, the rising of the sun, etc., sort of those things we would look at and say, well, that's sort of necessary to happen. The confession says God is working through that. Freely is a reference to our actions as um, agents, as beings who have free will to make free choices, to act freely within the world. The confession says God works in and through and around our actions and decisions and choices. And contingently is kind of a catch-all for things that don't really fit into those first two categories. It's a reference to things that we might regard as just something completely random. So, for example, the, the story that is told in, in the book of Kings of a battle between, uh, the, in which the king of Israel is, is, uh, is, is fighting. And he's been told by the prophet um, that he's going to die in this battle. And in the battle, we're told that uh, at one point in, in the battle, uh, a, a soldier from the opposing army draws his bow and as if at random lets an arrow fly and it just happens to hit the king in the heart and he dies. And the picture there is that what seems like kind of a random event that wasn't, you can't really explain it in terms of physical laws of the universe or in terms of the intention or choices of this soldier who randomly shoots an arrow, um, actually that was within the providence of God. He saw that was, he, he, he planned that to happen in advance. And the point of contingently is that there's nothing really truly chaotic or random in God's world. As Proverbs 16.33 says, the die is cast in the lap, but the Lord determines the outcome. It's not really truly anything um, purposeless or random in God's world. But the first two, necessarily and freely, raise some questions for us, um, um, perhaps. But the general point that is made by the fact that God works through natural 
um, sort of scientifically explicable normal patterns of the world and free agents like us is that God's normal way of operating in the world, if you're just viewing it from, the, from uh, sort of the ground level, would be explicable in other ways. You could say, well, that just happened because the sun always comes up or goes down. I can explain that in terms of the laws of nature. Or that just happened because this person chose to do this or decided to do that. But what the confession is saying here is that God primarily, the, his primary way of operating in the world is in and through sort of otherwise normally explicable things, i.e. second causes. Okay. Um, let me unpack this uh, just a little bit more because there's probably some questions we have about this. How, uh, just the necessarily one first. How is God related to what we might explain as sort of the physical laws of nature? Well, part of our problem is that we assume that natural laws of nature, the sun rising and falling, the seasons, etc., that that is kind of mutually exclusive with God's acting in the world. So if I can explain something in normal sort of scientific ways, well, then that means God can't be involved. We tend to view God's engagement with, with the world only in terms of the special things that God does that you can't explain any other way. You might have heard the, the idea of the God of the gaps theory, in which if you can explain something in terms of scientific principles or whatever, then God's not involved in that. Um, he only steps in occasionally to do special things. And the more that science unfolds or, or explains, then the gaps are shrinking and there's no more place for God. Um, but that's not actually the biblical picture of how God works with the world. God's normal way of working through the world is through ordinary second causes. And this, this fits with the doctrine of creation, which we've just looked at. That God creates everything, remember? And he sustains and upholds everything by the word of his power. So he's continually engaged in sustaining what we regard as the normal patterns of the world. That means that the seasons and the regularity of, of, of nature is because God continues to uphold all things. So when occasionally God does something out of the ordinary, what we call a miracle, it's not because at that moment God is stepping in and doing something when he wasn't doing anything before. It's just that he's changed his normal pattern of engaging with the world. He's always upholding all the world. But sometimes he might act slightly differently than his normal pattern. And we notice that especially because it's so different from what he normally does. And I think that's, that's helpful for us as Christians because we expect God to, to act in sort of miraculous or otherwise inexplicable ways. But that's not the normal way he's involved. He's involved in our lives in deep, profound, constant, and present ways all the time. And you mustn't look for him to be acting primarily only in the special uh, sort of miraculous. That's not his normal way of operating. And that's what section three of the confession is, is, is saying, that God in his ordinary providence makes use of means. But he doesn't always. He's free to work without. That's just a reference to, to the miraculous. Okay. Let me just pick up the term freely uh, um, as well. So this is, again, still under section two, that God uses second causes either necessarily freely or contingently. How is it possible that God could be exerting his providence when we as human beings have free choices, we act as free agents in the world? How do those things go together? 
Um, the, sort of a great example of this is the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, which will be familiar to many of you. You remember Joseph? He's a bit of a cocky young lad, and his, his brothers um, get upset with him, um, and they end up selling him as a slave to the Midianites who take him to Egypt, and he ends up climbing in the ranks of a guy that he's been sold to and then accused of adultery and thrown into prison. And he spends a couple of years languishing there in prison until he's called out by the Pharaoh to help explain a dream, which leads to the saving of, of Egypt when a great famine comes. And his brothers then come um, when the, because the famine has struck them and they're starving and they come to Egypt for grain. And there's Joseph, the, their brother, who they'd sold into slavery 30 years later, who's in charge of the grain. And they recognize, they, they, when he discloses himself to them, he says to them, Joseph says to his brothers, way back then when you sold me into slavery, you intended that for evil. You acted in an evil way. But God intended it for good. Somehow, they had free choice to act in a certain way, but God worked in and through that event and the events that fell on from that actually to bring about a situation in which they would be saved from being starved, from from starvation. You intended it for evil, but God has worked this out for good, Joseph says to his brothers. Now, this might introduce a bit of a problem for us. You might wonder, how do these two things go together, that God is at work and, and I can be freely acting and deciding and choosing at the same time? And at the end of the day, we just have to accept that there is a bit of a tension here. There is mystery here. There's profound mystery here. Somehow, both of these things are simultaneously true. But I do think that part of our problem in, in this conundrum comes from the way that we think about freedom, particularly in the West, in, in modern cultures and societies, we think about freedom as kind of independent self-rule, which is not really the reality in Scripture. God doesn't give us independent self-rule. He says to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, you're free to eat from all of these trees in the garden, but not this one. The idea of freedom has more to do with the freedom to choose, free, uh, free will, free to decide and to choose and to act um, freely. And that doesn't mean that I'm free to choose the consequences of my actions. I can choose to, to do something or to act in a certain way, but I'm not free to sort of choose how that's going to affect others or the consequences that are going to happen. And I'm not free to, to choose how God might use or work in or through or around the things that I do. God also is free, you see, as a free agent in, in the world. And that's not going to solve the, the, the tension there necessarily, but some of the problems come from the way that we define these words like freedom and free, free choice and free will. Well, I think it's worth sort of stepping back at this point and just asking yourself, what kind of a God can steer his creation toward the best possible end while not crushing or overriding the freedom of his creatures to destroy it or themselves? What kind of a God is able to work with what you meant for evil, work that out for good? This is a remarkable God who sustains and upholds, directs, and steers towards this ultimate good end. Well, this brings us to the second area of question that we might have. How could God's providence relate to human sin? 
Section 4 begins to address this question. And I just direct you to my, um, my sort of one-line summary of that. The basic gist of section 4 is that even sin is governed by God's providence and yet is not caused by Him. Even sin is governed by God's providence and yet God doesn't cause it. Now, there's a couple things to say in sort of unpacking this. The first is that God allows sin, but He sort of circumscribes it, He bounds it, He governs it such that he doesn't, he doesn't let our sins have, he, 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 he bounds or circumscribes the effects that our sin might have. Um, he curbs the effects of our sin. He might judge us or nations or kings for sin to limit the amount of, of evil that might come about. God governs sin. We're, choose, we're, we're free to choose to sin, um, but not free to choose the consequences of our, of our choices. So there's a number of instances in Scripture where God is um, acting in history to curb or to judge sin, um, where where an empire is said, I'm going to. God says to the Assyrians, for instance, you are so haughty and think that you're so uh, great and impressive, but you are actually just an axe in my hand that I'm using for a time, for a season, but I will um, replace you with someone else because you are full of arrogance and pride. Or think of Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, who is very haughty and walking about his palaces thinking that he's the king of the world. And God says to him, don't you realize that I actually am in, in charge? And Nebuchadnezzar loses his reason for a season. Um, he loses his mind for a, for a period of time. So God kind of curbs or bounds potentials, uh, the potential of sin. Think of the Tower of Babel, where, where human beings were going to build a tower to, to um, represent their independence from God. And God says, if I let this go on, they're going to destroy themselves and all of my creation, so I'm going to make it more difficult for them to collaborate in this rebellious effort. And he splinters their language so they don't understand each other and scatters them all over the world. So God governs and and restricts and bounds our sin and its effects to some extent. But perhaps a bit more uh, importantly or more fundamentally, God, what is meant by this statement, is that God weaves even our sin into his design plan. Even sin he can weave into his providence. This brings us back to Joseph. You meant it for evil, Joseph says, but God meant it for good. Or think of perhaps the ultimate example of Scripture is Jesus himself, where Judas, one of the disciples, betrays Jesus, sells him off, um, one of the most highest, perhaps the most highest sort of sinful act in, in Scripture, he betrays the Son of God, sells him. Um, and the Jewish authorities, in their sort of self-righteousness and pride, they condemn Jesus to death. But somehow, in and through the sinful actions of these characters, God was accomplishing his plan that he had planned from the beginning of the world the salvation of the world through Jesus' death on the cross. Now, what kind of a God could pull that off? You meant it for evil, Judas, Jewish religious leaders, but God is working in and through and around your sinful activity for good. As a a helpful illustration, some of you may have heard of um, 
kintsugi. It's a, it's a special kind of Japanese art that takes broken pottery and using uh, gold fixes it. It's sort of re, uh, restored broken pottery using gold. So it's, it's really beautiful stuff where all the, the fissures and the breaks are sort of suffused with golden lines. Um, and and the, the result is actually quite beautiful, in some ways more beautiful than just a plain pot would have been initially before it was broken. And that's a bit of a picture, perhaps, of what God is, is in doing in being engaged in and with and through sinful, broken humanity. He is weaving around something that is going to be truly beautiful and glorious. Um, it's only God, the God of Scripture, who is able to take something as ugly and horrible as the crucifixion and death of His Son and make that Good Friday. It's only God that could take the rebellious action of the Tower of Babel and take the fact that God confused their languages such that they couldn't understand each other and incorporate that, weave that into part of the beautiful multivalent picture of the new people in, in uh, the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, which is made up of people from every tribe and tongue and people who are gathered together around the throne of the Lamb. What was initially an act of sin and rebellion that results in the breakage of languages is part of the beautiful, composite, colorful image of, of the people of God. We are, we are made up from people from every tongue and tribe and nation. This is providence, God working in and through and around even sinful activity. Now, the key here is that you can only see this. You can only see God's providence in retrospect. Generally, you can only see it fully in retrospect. Sometimes we're given glimpses in the midst of something, but quite often we, we don't see exactly how He's working things out until we can see from a vantage point in the future. And the other trick is, the key is that we don't know exactly when we've arrived at the vantage point from which we can see how God has actually worked all this out. So Joseph, for instance, might have thought that he was, he'd arrived when, okay, things are going really bad, he's been sold into slavery, but then he works his way up into Potiphar's house as a significant trusted uh, employee. He might have thought, well, now I've arrived, I understand why God allowed me to be sold into slavery. That was the wrong vantage point from which to understand what God was doing, because the next day he's in prison for two years. What on earth is going on, he might have thought. And it's only at the end of his life that he's able to look back over the whole thing and see how God was weaving all this brokenness and difficulty and sin into a situation by which God could save the Egyptians and his own people so they wouldn't die in the famine. Think of um, all of human history more broadly, where I think this is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that at just the right time, God sent his son. Think of the Roman Empire in the first century. Roman imperialism was something that was fundamentally um, evil in some ways, in that Roman imperialism involved the subjugation of other peoples and, and, and cultures. It involved slavery. It involved certain kinds of barbarism. It was a, a, a wicked sort of pagan thing at, at one level. But because of Rome, the Roman Empire, the whole known world was under one rulership, such that there were roads built all over the empire. You could travel freely. There was a common language so you could easily understand. And at that moment, Paul says, at just that time, God sent his son. And in that context, it's very easy for Paul to walk the roads that the Romans built all over the Roman empire and speak 
the gospel in a language that everybody would understand because Jesus had come and been born in just the right place because Caesar Augustus had issued a census decree but would get him into Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy. At just the right time, God works even in through something ugly like the Roman Empire to achieve his purposes and ends. What kind of a God can do this? Could turn a good creation that has been made broken but make it into a stunningly beautiful new creation. This is a remarkable God. This brings us to um, section 5, and we're, we're nearing the end. Again, just my sort of summary statement. God may allow temptation and sin within His ultimate purposes to bring us to Him. Now, this is... A similar point being made here, that God might allow temptation and sin even in your life to achieve his purposes in your life. You know, sometimes God can seem distant, uncaring, like he's not in control, but the doctrine of providence encourages us to trust um, that God has a purpose in this. So think of uh, the story of Uh, in John's gospel, in John chapter 11, where Mary and Martha, their brother Lazarus, is sick and he dies. And when Jesus arrives just a few days late, they say to him, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. Um, And if Jesus had been there, he could have healed Lazarus, but they wouldn't have learned anything new about Jesus. They already knew he was a healer. But by deliberately letting Lazarus die, and John is very clear that Jesus deliberately stayed so he was late so Lazarus would die. By letting Lazarus die, Mary and Martha had the chance to learn not only that Jesus is a healer, but that he is the resurrection and the life. Sometimes God lets Lazarus die so we can learn that he is the resurrection and the life. Sometimes you think, well, I think of Mary in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 7. Jesus says of her, Mary, this prostitute who who, um, wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, um, she sinned much. And because she experiences grace from Jesus, Jesus says, she who sinned much, therefore loves much. And maybe God allows certain things in our life such that we will appreciate and, and love God all the more because we recognize what his grace means to us. Now, there's sort of deep mystery here, and we can't work out exactly how God might be working in and through difficult circumstances or sin or temptation in our lives. And this is where we have to step back and, and, and recognize God's character in all of this, that God is directing and steering the ship of the world and our lives to benevolent ends, because He is a good, wise, righteous God. Uh, what's helpful uh, in this is a, a helpful line from the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, who said, when we cannot trace God's hand, we must trust His heart. Okay, when you can't exactly follow what God exactly might be doing, when you can't trace His hand, trust His heart. Know the kind of God that He is. This is a God who created a beautiful, orderly world to bring glory to His name a God who sustains it, who is working providentially through all the brokenness and machinations of empires and individuals to save us through the death of His Son that He gave to us to die on the cross for us. Is this the kind of God who is out to destroy 
you or to mess with your life. If you cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Finally, section six, sometimes God even hardens the hearts of ungodly men who in turn harden their own hearts. Um, the example of this in Scripture is, is Pharaoh, who in his evil heart hardened his heart against, uh, against Moses and against God's request that, that the people of Israel be allowed to go freely. Um, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and so God, seeing the trajectory of Pharaoh's heart, that he was evil in his heart and he'd already made certain choices in this direction, he'd hardened his own heart, God confirms Pharaoh in his decisions and hardens his heart. So God sees uh, our actions and, and maybe sort of puts his seal or stamp of approval sometimes, in some cases, by hardening further the hearts of those who are already inclined to harden their own hearts against him. And finally, um, section 7, how does God's providence relate in particular to the church or to the people of God um, in Jesus? God is, this is again my just summary statement, God is sovereign, especially over his church. And that doesn't mean that he's sovereign more over the church than he is over other things, but he's especially uh, sovereign or providential over the church, working things together for um, it's good for our good. Now, this does not mean that as Christians we're immune from difficulty or suffering. In fact, the New Testament is very clear that trial and suffering are um, ubiquitous to Christian experience. Um, rather, what is being said here is that for God's people, those who are in Jesus, God is working all things together ultimately in the end for our ultimate good. And remember, we're not going to be able to see exactly how he's doing that until the end uh, of all human history, when God, as it were, can peel back the curtain and we can look back over all of human history and see how he wove together all brokenness and evil and sin and, and destruction in our uh, hearts and whatnot to put together a beautiful piece of pottery suffused with a golden line, even at the points that are, would have seemed to us most dark. At the very darkest point, that's that day that God made Good Friday. And the, the preeminent sort of ultimate picture of God's working through brokenness is the, is the church. That we who were enemies of God, hostile to God, sinful to the core, he redeemed and reconciled us to God and pieced together this broken, shattered people who you know, were in enmity with each other, whose languages were splintered and makes us into one people from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne of the Lamb, worshiping Him. That is unbelievable. It's beyond our comprehension that God's providence applies in a special kind of way to the church. Well, let me return to the thought I introduced with that the difference this should make for us, in closing, should make us thankful when things don't go well. Um, or, sorry, when things go well. Um, when things go well for us or, or go well in the world or whatever, we have someone to give thanks to. But when things don't go well, it encourages us to be patient because there is a good, righteous, benevolent God who is steering the ship towards His good ends. And it encourages us to be hopeful confident that ultimately, in the end, nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
as the hymn goes on that I introduced with, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love for us and your ways in the world which are far beyond our comprehension. Lord, even if we can't understand fully how you might be at work in our lives or in our country or in our world, help us to trust your heart and to take comfort from this and to live in light of the fact that you not only made us, you sustain us, and you're guiding this world towards a great and glorious end for your glory. We thank you, and we hope in you, and we wait patiently for you. In the strong name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.